Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Hello and welcome to another edition of In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into some of the major news shaping life here in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi, joined this go-round by Holly Kwan. Hello, Holly. Hello. Good to be here. Glad to have you, too. Today on the program, we have a repeat guest. We're going to be speaking with Craig Fair. He is the deputy special agent in charge for the San Francisco division of the FBI. That is an outfit that covers a huge portion of coastal California from Monterey to the Oregon border. Uh, Craig Ferry, good to have you on again. Thank you. Well, it hasn't been too long since you were on the show, but the world of law enforcement is, of course, constantly churning. So, still fair to say that we've got an awful lot to cover again today. So, here's what's coming up on the program. A little bit later in the show, we're going to discuss the major and growing threat facing businesses here in the Bay Area of economic espionage. Also on the program, well, it is an organization shrouded in secrecy, but does that mean the FBI is also doomed to be misunderstood? We'll take a look at a controversial FBI program and hear from our guest what he thinks those of us not privy to classified reports are getting wrong about it. But first, we're going to need to start off with a bit of recent news, Holly. Yeah, we were all horrified by the attacks on the mosques in, in New Zealand and the white nationalists uh, espousings of the suspect. What, what did that event reveal to the intelligence community? Well, what it revealed was uh, more of a, it was more of a reaffirmation that this continues to be a trend, um, that there are, there is still evil out there, and there are individuals um, who spend a considerable amount of time and effort and resources in mobilizing uh, towards violence. I think what it also highlights is that people just don't snap, that there is an attenuated period of time uh, where people think about this, where they communicate with others, uh, where they mobilize resources, weapons, ammunition, they take time to plan. Um, so there's a lot of pre-thought uh, that, that goes into it. One of the things that we would like to emphasize and a strong consideration that we would uh, like to put out into the public, because there is a fair amount of time uh, during which somebody is mobilizing towards violence, um, there's a certain amount of leakage, meaning whether it's intentional or whether it's unintentional, that person is doing things and saying things that are indicators that that person is mobilizing towards violence. It could be colleagues, friends, it can be exhortations, um, online, or it can be uh, family, family and friends. Are there uh, hate groups in in the Bay Area that that, that you track? Um, where are they uh, active? Becoming more active from in the region from Monterey to the Oregon border? Well, I, I I would say so. In the past several years, we've observed violence at U.S. constitutionally protected protests and rallies. We certainly saw that with several Berkeley events uh, over the past year. But it is groups, and it's particularly it's individuals uh, across the the entire ideological, socio political spectrum. 
um, groups that espouse their beliefs, um, political and social uh, activism, um, that are many of which is constitutionally protected by the First Amendment. However, there are those individuals uh, that are bent on committing acts of violence, actually commit violence, or they're conspiring with others. And it's at that point and only that point where we have either an allegation or information of such that constitutes a violation of federal law does the FBI get involved. So there has to be, again, there has to be a behavior or some allegation that's received by the FBI that constitutes a violation of some federal law before we can uh, conduct any investigative activity. Do you get information sharing? I mean, to what extent do you get information sharing from local law enforcement and make, you know, going globally, uh, share information with other countries? So we do, the FBI doesn't, we do not do our job alone. We do not do it in a stovepipe. We are wholly dependent on our, our relationships with our local partners, our state partners, and our federal partners. And the only way that we can have a robust and functional relationship is by having a vibrant information sharing environment. And that comes in many different forms and fashions. We have task force officers that are assigned and sitting full time within FBI space which gives us direct connectivity to their departments and their department's information. And so you have a free flow of information that goes back and forth. We also receive uh, information from the roughly 160 different local law enforcement agencies within our area of responsibility through other channels like the National Fusion Center, which has a reporting application that any local law enforcement officer, when they see suspicious activity, can go to the Fusion Center uh, website and submit a suspicious activity report, which is then evaluated by the Fusion Center and, and whether if that needs to be handled by a local law enforcement agency, the Fusion Center will notify them, or if it looks like it's a violation of federal law, it will come to the FBI. So locally, there's many different mechanisms to share information, and we've gotten very good at that since 9-11. Now, with regard to sharing information with our foreign partners, we have some foreign partners that we are exceptionally close with, and there's others that we, we share with on an, on an as-needed basis. What we will always do, regardless of the country, if we have information that suggests there's going to be an act of violence, an act of terror, um, a, a deployment of a weapon of mass destruction anywhere in the world, that country is going to be notified, even if they are our adversaries. Now, I know you mentioned a moment ago uh, task, for task forces and the, the various ways that you are cooperating with local law enforcement to, to gain this information. One, probably the most well-known uh, form of that cooperation is a program known as the Joint Terrorism Task Force, uh, in which you cooperate with local law enforcement uh, to have them you know, help you uh, acclimatize yourself to the local law enforcement situation. How big of a role does the Joint Terrorism Task Force play in preventing the sorts of crimes like uh, we saw in New Zealand? Well, they, they, they play a key and, and central role in uh, preventing an act of terror, which is our number one mission uh, in the FBI and even in the US, U.S. government. That's why the Joint Terrorism Task Force was set up um, both nationally and within each of our 56 field offices. So the Joint Terrorism Task Force, I'll refer to as JTTF, um, we have a, about a 104 JTTFs across the country comprised of over 5,000 
uh, members from various state, local, and federal law enforcement agencies. Um, Within the JTTF uh, in San Francisco, you have uh, a couple dozen different agencies that are participating, Um, local police departments, um, state agencies like the California Highway Patrol, and other other, uh, federal agencies. So a task force officer who was brought in from an outside agency, they're assigned full-time to the JTTF, they're given a desk, uh, they are federally deputized, um, they are given a top secret clearance, and they have all of the accesses uh, that an FBI agent would have. But what's unique about a task force officer assigned to the JTTF is that they have direct connectivity to not just the communities they serve and they know so well, but connectivity to the entirety of the uh, the department from which they came to include the command staff. So local police departments and state agencies will typically send their best, their brightest and most seasoned officers um, who understand the administration and the politics, um, how their own organization runs. So that in a time of crisis, that task force officer can very quickly mobilize uh, the resources, the people and the information necessary to either prevent an act of terrorism or to help recover from one or to help us um, investigate or all of the above. They have unique capabilities and skill sets that they bring that greatly enhance the counterterror mission of the FBI. So the reason that I bring up the Joint Terrorism Task Force to pivot now to one of the topics that I teased at the beginning of the program is that I know that one of the reasons that you have been so eager to engage with the media is your feeling that there are some misconceptions among the public uh, about how the FBI does its work. Now, this program, the JTTF, is one of those programs that the public has had some concerns about. Both San Francisco and more recently Portland have left the program uh, facing those concerns. So I thought that this could be taken as a good jumping off point for what might be a broader discussion of what you view as that disconnect between public perception and the FBI's work. And it's a deep conversation because on the one hand, this program has stoked fears among some civil rights groups of law enforcement overreach. But on the other, you know, I think this week's events illustrate quite clearly why some view this collaboration and preparation as extremely helpful and extremely important in preventing these uh, sorts of terrorist attacks. So uh, there's this really difficult double-edged sword that comes up whenever we discuss these issues. Uh, Tell me, to start this off, in your view, what do you wish that people who are not privy to the classified information that you're privy to, what would you hope that the rest of us would know about the Joint Terrorism Task Force? Well, that's that's a great question, Keith, and it's one that we ponder on an, on an ongoing basis. Um, when, you know, when people don't have information, um, the void gets filled in, and oftentimes it can get filled in um, with misperceptions, misunderstandings. Um, you know, in this case, the FBI's national security mission, under which the counterterrorism program resides, um, it's all secret. Everything we do is in a secret enclave. All, nearly all the tools that we use 
are classified secret, top secret, and even more highly classified than that. So there is, it creates mystery in what we do. It creates a mystery in who we are, uh, mystery about how we investigate and the extent and scope to which we are investigating communities at large of which we do not, simply legally not permissible. Regardless, because we are so, so shrouded in secrecy on the national security mission, it creates concerns, understandable concerns out there in the community as to what the FBI is up to. Just to make the discussion a little bit more concrete for our listeners that may not be following every twist and turn of the alphabet soup programs that come out of Washington, D.C., to clue people in, two of the groups that have had concerns about this in the past would be the American Civil Liberties Union, as well as the Council on American-Islamic Relations. And I'm going to give voice to those concerns very briefly before uh, we get back into this broader conversation. Uh, One of the individuals that I spoke with is a guy by the name of Jeffrey Wang. He's a civil rights attorney for the Bay Area's office of the Council on American-Islamic Relations. He told me that a a lot of the concern for them comes down to trust. Uh, And for many of the communities in the Bay Area, including the Muslim community, he says that that trust uh, just isn't there yet for the FBI. Many people from minority communities have been historically subject to monitoring, surveillance, and intelligence gathering by the FBI simply due to their First Amendment activities, uh, including religious beliefs. Now, these are otherwise ordinary American citizens who are regularly visited by the FBI at their places of work or at home or in other settings simply because they are Muslim. So for them, increased cooperation between local law enforcement and the FBI creates more avenues for what they consider to be law enforcement overreach. Now, that's actually not the point that I want to get at here. This is a complicated issue, and I I really don't think we're going to get to the bottom of it here today without everyone in the room together. But uh, for the record, before we move on to the main point, uh, I'm hoping to get to, I imagine you you may want to respond to some of the concerns that he raised there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the concern that that he is raising there, and that's not the first time that we have heard this in popular media. That's uh, a soundbite that we we hear continuously. Mm -hmm. So the the very bottom line up front is that the FBI does not investigate anybody based on race, religion, country of origin, um, religious beliefs. We simply do not do it. Legally, we cannot do it. Mm -hmm. The only time the the FBI gets involved is when there is an allegation or there's information constituting a violation of federal law or a threat to national security. Then and only then are we permitted to engage in any kind of investigative activity. All right. And we'll let that serve as that particular discussion for now. Obviously, there's a lot more to say there. But the main issue that I wanted to get at is that the issue of trust. Uh, and what the FBI could be doing to win that local trust. Uh, I actually asked Jeffrey Wang uh, if there was any way for the FBI to win his trust and the trust of his organization. Here is what he told me. We hope that the FBI can be more forthright and forthcoming with us, because up till now there's been some areas of SFPD, JTTF participation that to this day still remain a black box to us. So he's he's asking for more transparency, and I imagine... Mm -hmm. That's a pretty tough nut to crack, just given the nature yeah. of your work. That, that's exactly right. Again, as I said earlier, um, the, the, the counterterrorism mission falls under our national security apparatus that is uh, nearly every investigation is, is secret and only so much can be disclosed. With regard to the Joint Terrorism Task Force, there's only so much transparency that can be offered 
because we simply just cannot hand over classified information into the public forum. I legally cannot walk into a Board of Supervisors meeting and talk about the work of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, considering it is all classified. In order for me to have a discussion about that, I would have to have uh, FBI headquarters declassify that information for the purposes of a public meeting, and that's it's simply not going to happen. Unfortunately, we are going to be limited in terms of how transparent we can be in that national security mission. But for those communities that do feel like they have been singled out by the FBI in the past and have are extremely sensitive to any any time where the FBI requests an interview or requests some information and it just rightly or wrongly I'll be agnostic on that point brings up those memories of federal prosecution and and for them makes them feel like they're being placed under an undue level of scrutiny is there more that the FBI could be doing to reach out to that community and perhaps getting everybody around the same table, letting everybody know what's going on. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, anytime the FBI goes out, the majority of people, including yourself possibly, have never met an FBI agent. This is my first time. Okay. So, this, which is exactly my point. So when an FBI agent shows up, calls you, invites you to meet for coffee uh, for an interview, because you may be able to assist the Bureau in resolving some allegation of wrongdoing, um, that's an inherently stressful situation. I, I, I can't imagine if I was an FBI agent and I received that call or a knock on my door, that would be concerning. So we, com we, we completely understand that. And as such, we have fortified and are building up our community engagement efforts. For example, after the, the shootings in, uh, in New Zealand, we immediately reached out to our partners in the sick Jewish and Muslim community. Um, even though that massacre occurred thousands of miles away, it's, it still impacts the Bay Area. People in the Bay Area, that a shooter could go into a house of worship, a place of sanctity where you expect reasonably to have privacy. Um, and for that event to occur in the manner in which it occurred um, with exceptional violence, it hits everybody. And so our, our effort was to reach out to those communities to let them know that we are doing everything we can to safeguard them and their places of worship and to offer our condolences um, for the senseless tragedy that occurred. When we, when we do that, and what happened in this case, uh, we were invited to attend vigils. We were requested to speak at several of those. Um, and in one instance uh, this past week, um, two of the communities reached out to us uh, for us to meet with their leadership to talk about hate crimes, to talk about terrorism and the extent to which the Department of Justice and the FBI is attempting to mitigate that here in the Bay Area. Mm. So actual outreach from the community itself, asking for more engagement from the FBI? That's correct. Mm. Right. And so we reached out to them and um, that was accepted. Mm -hmm. And that, that was immediate reach back to us requesting our presence, our resources, explanations as to what we are doing to, to counter uh, terrorism within the Bay Area. You're listening to In-Depth on KCBS. This week, we are welcoming back onto the program Craig Fair, Deputy Special Agent in Charge for the San Francisco Division of the FBI. 
Up next, we're going to discuss a growing threat the FBI is confronting, economic espionage. It's an especially troubling challenge for a region such as the Bay Area, where the prime natural resource is innovation. That innovation, of course, isn't worth very much when someone else has stolen your blueprints and figured out how to make your big idea for even less money. The problem is so widespread that one federal estimate puts the annual cost of intellectual property theft in the hundreds of billions of dollars. To start off our conversation, Agent Fair pointed to the country seen as the origin of the lion's share of the theft, China. China has been exceptional in establishing strategies relative to their own technological, economic, military, and social development. Probably the best in the world, most comprehensive and, and long-term. So much so that they actually publicize those strategies on the internet. You can do open source searches right now and find those strategies and the technologies that they are actually seeking to advance themselves in the world marketplace. One of those is called China 2025. And what the China 2025 plan does, it has the goal of significantly upgrading China's production quality, efficiency, and self-sufficiency um, and establishing its own technological needs. In other words, developing their own indigenous production ability in key sectors so that they are not reliant upon um, importing uh, goods and products from other, other countries. One of the, the other significant parts of their strategy is called the five-year plan. Now, China is on its 13th five-year plan. And what that does is it sets forth, promulgates a strategy, and sets benchmarks for its economic, technological, and social development. And that is the procurement of parts and products from other countries. And they're very open about that. They do that through two types of vectors, um, traditional vectors, and that's a collection techniques by which they use their own foreign intelligence collection services, like the Ministry of State Security, to go out and actually steal high-tech type products. Now, this all raises the question of prevention. So how do you prevent this kind of threat when what's being stolen is, is just information and can be carried out of your company just in an employee's memory, just in their brain? How do you prevent something like this? No, that's a great question. And that's probably the, 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 the keystone in this entire discussion regarding economic espionage. And that's how, how, do, you, how do you protect your company? Uh, a good example of what you're describing, um, I would say it was a recent uh, Micron case in which an employee, um, Taiwanese, actually uh, took out uh, dynamic random access memory technology, established a, a company overseas, and the potential loss to the victim company here in the United States was about $8.75 billion. And that was here, here in the Bay Area. So the question of how do you protect your company? One, you've got to identify your key technology, identify what's important, and then you've got to safeguard it. And you have to be vigilant about who is working on that particular technology. If you, if you do not safeguard your technology and it walks and your intellectual property flees to another country, um, there is not a lot that the U.S. government can do to prosecute that. Once you safeguard your intellectual property, it now becomes a trade secret. And it becomes subject to, for legal buffs out there, is 18 United States Code. Eight, 18, Take notes, everybody. Take eight, notes. 1831 and 1832, which 
sets forth the elements of economic espionage and defines what exactly is a trade secret. So if you're if you are a college or a university and you're working on something potentially sensitive or it is actually sensitive and you do not put proper safeguards in in order to protect that intellectual property, it is not going to be considered from a legal standpoint a trade secret. Mm. Therefore, it is not something that is, is going to be prosecutable from our, our standpoint. The case simply will not be taken by U.S. Attorney's Office. And we see that problem all the time mm-hmm. in cases. There was one out of Ohio where the intellectual property was admittedly given to um, a government official, and we simply could not take the case because it was, was not considered a trade secret under the laws. Do you help with that? I mean, at, at what point do, does somebody who has some... Uh a, a new product or some new technology um, realize that this is something that needs to be protected. Um, do, do companies, do you feel like en- enough of them are doing uh, you know, en- enough to protect not just their own internal secrets? I mean, do you, do you work with them? I mean, you said that you, you kind of do briefings, but, you know, do you ever walk in the, walk into a place, whether it's a college, university, some sort of research lab and go, boy, I hope they protect it. <laughs> yeah, no, Holly, that is, that's an excellent point. Um, and so I'll speak – I'm trying to keep this localized to the Bay Area. I, there is roughly um, several – I won't give you the exact number, but several dozen venture capital firms um, that are Chinese-owned that reside in the Bay Area. Um, that's significant because, as you said, somebody may not know that what they are working on is or potentially um, is going to be of value to that. Uh, so we know that the Chinese are trying to get in with venture capital – get their money and get some type of foothold or stronghold in particular companies or components so that later on they can absorb that and work that back into their strategy and their plan and their technology overseas. And so what one of the things that the FBI is focusing on right now is emerging technologies, but specifically what we refer to as foundational technologies. Um, foundational technologies that ultimately and potentially could even be dual-use civilian military applications down the road. The Chinese get in on it early. They take it. Um, We may not even know the damage that it has done to us, uh, even for decades. Do you think that people are sufficiently vetted then? You said you have to know who you're hiring. Well, how do you know who you're hiring? Can 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 you, you know, do an FBI background check on them? You don't know what they're going to do later on, but... No, that's true, and that that is a, that is a difficult uh, problem set. Um, you need to know who you're hiring and understand that what technologies you have in your holdings and what it is that you're building, and you need to maintain a level of security mindedness throughout the production phase of that intellectual property, and be mindful of the people that are around it their activities, are they taking photographs of their computer screens to circumvent any type of tracking uh, on their computer system, and <clears throat> different types of, of secu- implementing different types of security features around that particular technology to ensure that if somebody is downloading it or taking pictures um, or displaying aberrant behavior relative to their research, that it trips some tripwire that you've established. Mm. 
All right. Well, we are going to close on that point. We have been speaking today to Craig Fair. He is the deputy special agent in charge for the San Francisco division of the FBI. Agent Fair, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Keith. And Holly, thanks for coming on as well. You're welcome. It's always a learning experience for me. (laughs) And for me as well. Once again, everybody, you have been listening to In Depth on KCBS. For KCBS, I am Keith Manconi, and we will see you next time. You've just heard KCBS In Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 1069. KCBS. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.